Okay, before we get started, I'm going to invite everybody to put both feet on the ground, if you can, if able. Claudia, you, you're good, Claudia. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to invite you sit up, but be, but be comfortable. Be as comfortable as you can be. And I invite you to either, either like just close your eyes uh, or just find like kind of a spot to, to stare off to. Uh, that's fine as well to look indirectly at. And I just want us for a couple moments to breathe and like uh, get in touch with our body, to connect with our body. So just kind of sense and feel that you're breathing. See that that's going on within you. And then just kind of uh, figure out where's the tension? What tension might you be like, carrying in your body this morning? Where is it resting? And can you uh, breathe in to and out of that space? Just maybe let it loosen up. Sense yourself uh, relaxing as you continue to breathe. And now just take, take a deep breath. Take a deep inhale and an exhale. And take one more. Deep inhale and an exhale. And just kind of hold that space and hear the word of God as it comes to us from John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be complete, may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Holy, gracious God, we give you thanks for this word as it comes to us this morning. And pray that we might have uh, eyes that can see and ears that can hear so that we can receive this word and have hearts and minds that might understand. And in understanding, we would turn to you, and in turning to you, 
would find healing for our very lives. This we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So last Wednesday night, I was at um, the first uh, official gathering of the Commonwealth of Oakland, uh, Pastor Mike's uh, church uh, that he's starting in, in Oakland. And uh, it was a great time. Had a meal, had a service of worship. Uh, it was really wonderful. And uh, there was, of course, some reflections back to like some early hot metal uh, gatherings. And uh, Larry Sweeney was there. And Larry and Linda uh, were very uh, involved in early hot metal days. And Larry was telling some stories and remembering some things. And my son, Ben, uh, was also there. And he turned to Ben and he said, Ben, I remember the first time I met your mother. It was at one of the very first hot metal gatherings. We were having a big dinner together. And the vision for hot metal was being shared. And I remember, and Carolyn was pregnant when I met her then. Now, I, I was at the other end of the table, and I heard this conversation happening, and my ears kind of perked up, and like, I look, uh, you know, I, I reflected on this. And, and I remember that the, I, knew, I knew exactly which meeting he was talking to. It was a big dinner we had, and we gathered everybody together to share the vision of hot metal and get support. And uh, that was clearly June of 2002. So many years ago, but I remember it clearly. June is 2002. And the problem was Sam was born in June of 2001. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a little disconnect there, and I mentioned that to Larry. And he refused to believe me. <laughs> he was so certain of his story and of his narrative that it took me a while to be like, no, no, Larry, I'm sure maybe when you met Carolyn, she was pregnant, but it was not at that dinner. It was sometime before June of 2001. And it's a common tale, right? We get our stories lodged in our brains in a particular way that we are certain is correct. And it can be funny, and it can create animated conversations about who is right and who is wrong. There are narratives that we experience in life that are uniquely ours. But there are also narratives that, that we learn or are taught or that we assimilate from the culture around us. And sometimes these narratives are also wrong not just funny wrong, dangerous wrong. Wrong in such a way that is damaging to those that believe them. And the problem is that each and every one of us have such narratives that we live with and subconsciously or consciously accept part of these narratives as truth. Narratives that can fuel racism, sexism, ableism, xenophobia, all the isms, right? Now, some of these narratives were examined in detail at the White Privilege Conference that I attended just two weeks ago. It was the 19th year that this conference uh, happened. And I got to go to this conference as part of my other job as uh, overseeing a network of coaches for the 1001 uh, New Worshiping Communities Movement of the Presbyterian Church. And the mission of the conference is this. The White Privilege Conference provides a challenging, collaborative, and comprehensive experience 
we strive to empower and equip individuals to work for equity and justice through self and social transformation. And the White Privilege Conference also says this on its website. The White Privilege Conference looks at white privilege intersectionality in the context of various systems of privilege. So it was not just about racism, per se, as we might understand it, in a black and white context. But it was how the privilege of one group can be leveraged in such a way against other groups to marginalize and dehumanize them. And this can happen around race, gender, sexuality, religion, economy. And you know, white privilege impacts white people in negative ways as well. And this is put really well by a woman, Peggy McIntosh, who back in the late 1980s uh, wrote an article, a piece called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And she says this, she says, privilege exists when one group has something of value that is denied to others simply because of the groups they belong to, rather than because of anything they've done or failed to do. Access to privilege doesn't determine one's outcomes, but it is definitely an asset that makes it more likely that whatever talent, ability, and aspirations a person with privilege has will result in something positive for them. And there's a list of like examples of privilege on the White Privilege um, Conference website. And one is being able to not have to think about your race or your gender or your sexual orientation or disabilities on a daily basis. That one rang particularly true for me. Those are not things I'm thinking about or considering how they impact my life on a daily basis. So one of the workshops I attended, we talked about the narratives we hold in life, specifically the US racial narratives that we hold and operate out of. And there are five US racial narratives, and I'm gonna uh, kind of touch base on some of them so you can get the feel for some of the narratives that we live in and with in our country. One is the white racial narrative. And here's this narrative. They're honest, hardworking, rugged individuals on time, time trumps relationships, time is money, rational, Christian, good leaders, well-educated, civilized, founders of America, charitable, competitive, real Americans, they own things, they're in charge, they're doers. That's a white racial narrative that is largely true and has largely been accepted in our country. Then there's the black racial narrative, which is that blacks are often angry, criminal, drugs and gangs, aggressive, can be dangerous, athletes, uneducated, lazy, do not want to work, want to live off the system, loud, entertaining, been called super predators, broken families, at risk, complain too much about the past. And then there is the Native American racial narrative, which was spoken of a lot in this context. That they're alcoholics, they own casinos, they're stuck on rundown reservations, stoic, closer to nature, the noble savage, uh, caricatures, mascots, broken English, uneducated. And then, of course, there are the narratives that are around um, uh, Latinos and Mexicans, dangerous to the US, big families, drugs and gangs, criminals, taking our jobs, uneducated, 
work as menial laborers, rapists, no English, not from here. And those of Arab descent, terrorists, violent, Muslim extremists, hate America, hate our way of life, hate our freedom, evil, agents of Satan, abusive to women, backwards. So these are all narratives that flow through our American context and that we often buy into either consciously or unconsciously. And as I reflected on these narratives, I thought about all the narratives, all the ways like we categorize people. For example, we could like write a whole narrative around addiction and the way we think about those that are addicted. We can write a whole narrative around mental health and those dealing with mental health issues. We can write a narrative around urban slash suburban or a narrative around conservative slash liberal. They're both big and small narratives that we tell about each other. Assumptions that we have either made or have learned or have been ingrained in us either consciously or subconsciously. There's the American narrative that we are the land of the free and the home of the brave. God's ordained people to bring democracy to the world, forgetting the facts that our country was built on the genocide of one people and the enslavement of others. Now, part of the reason that we have these narratives is found actually in how our brain works that neuroscience shows that our brain stores things in categories. So our, our biases, our prejudices, our stereotypes are often a function of how the brain puts things into categories, and that's not bad in and of itself. But when our categories are tainted by dangerous narratives, our brain's default mode will activate in unhealthy ways. And like when that happens, when the brain gets like activated and that unconscious narrative seeps through, something like this can happen. A young man in the dark, a young black man in the dark holding a cell phone gets triggered in the mind as a young black man in the dark holding a gun. Because the narrative tells me that the young black man is aggressive, angry, and probably dangerous. And when it comes to racial narratives, we have a natural greater empathy for those that are like us. And we have a natural kind of anxiety or fear that kicks in towards those that are not like us. It could be a product of our very evolutionary nature of biology. But to those who are different race or who not look like us, we categorize them differently than we categorize those that are like us. And a dehumanizing a process and an othering process can actually happen in our brain. You see, we process out groups or groups not like us as objects or things rather than humans. And that happens in the back of the brain. Where the processing someone that we know and someone that is like us happens in the front of the brain where, where compassion is activated. There's a money quote uh, from the conference. At least I thought it was a money quote. It says this, we do not see things as they are, we see things as we are. We do not see things as they are, we see things as we are. So here's my question. The question I want us to ask ourselves this morning to reflect on. Is what unconscious bias or prejudice might be at work in you, in me? What false narratives might be influencing how we view other people? Who do we dehumanize? Who do we other? 
person of a different skin color, a different heritage, a different nationality, a different religion, a different sexuality, someone who is transgender, someone who is Republican, someone who is liberal, who do we dehumanize or other? And then, what do we do? How do we identify our defaults, our prejudice, our stereotypes? How do we arrive in the place of non-judgment, compassion, and love? And does our Christian faith have anything to say about it? And is there anything in the Christian narrative that is dangerous and feeds the cycles of oppression and dehumanizing and othering? So I chose John 15 for the scripture this morning because I think it addresses both of those questions that I just asked. Does our Christian faith have anything to say about all this? And is there anything that's dangerous in our Christian narrative that uh, fuels it, fuels the, the racism, fuels the othering, fuels the dehumanization of others? John 15 says, to abide in Jesus. So what does that mean? Abide itself means to accept or act in accordance with to continue without fading. To abide in Jesus, then, would to be act in accordance with him, to continue on with him without fading. And it seems in the scripture to be some consequences to the idea of not abiding in Jesus. That the metaphor is a Jesus being the vine, and we, the branches, must abide in the vine in order to bear fruit. And those that do not bear fruit will be cut off. I don't know if you heard it in the scripture. It said it will wither. The branch will wither and eventually be thrown into the fire and burned. And the danger here is that you can read this passage as a way of furthering Christian privilege. That we can do nothing unless we abide in Christ equals in our brains that we can do nothing unless we are Christian. And what does that narrative do? That immediately groups everyone else as out, as other. It sets us up as superior, as better than. It leads to things like the Crusades, justifications for slavery, and attempts to civilize the Native American savages by making them into westernized Christians. But Jesus did not say, abide in belief of me, or abide in these 10 points of doctrine. Abide does not mean only those who believe in Jesus bear fruit. Abide in Jesus does not mean believing you are right and everyone else is wrong. Abide in accordance to what about Jesus? To continue without fading in what? Well, Jesus clearly defines that to abide in him, to act in accordance to him, is to abide and act in love. It is love we are to abide in. The very love Jesus modeled for us in his life. A love that is willing to die for another, 
willing to wash another's feet, willing to consider others as better than ourselves, rather than us considering, considering ourselves better than others. And what others, what others get to be better than ourselves? All the others. All the outgroups. All the groups we quickly categorize in our minds, whether it's black or Native American, poor or homeless, the addict, someone who is gay or transgender, a Hindu, a Jew, Muslims, consider all of them as better than our very selves without judgment. Jesus says abide in love, not in Christianity. So the branch that withers is not the Hindu or the Muslim or the Jew who does not believe in Jesus or the LGBT person that does not live into the norm we have prescribed for society, the branch that withers is the one who refuses to love, refuses to live in the love of Jesus that he modeled for us. The branch that withers holds on to its narrative of privilege, that refuses to live from a center of love, and who live out of the false narratives of privilege and racism. We must not believe the American Christian worldview is the only worldview. There are plenty of withering Christians that are refusing to abide in love for others by, by holding on to their bias and their privilege and the illusion that we are better than others. Now, it's a difficult task to face your own built-in bias and racism. It has certainly been a journey for me. I considered myself a woke, colorblind, white person for much of my life. And it was not until I worked with people of color and in poor communities that I became aware of my own privilege and station in life. It was not until I had hard conversations with the black pastor in that community that I realized the ways unconscious bias was at work in me. It was not until I listened deeply to the stories my friends of color had to tell me about their life and how they had to raise their teenage boys differently than mine by teaching them skills I did not have to teach to Ben and Sam. Skills like how to have a conversation with a police officer. It was not until then that I understood there was a very real difference between the white experience of America and the black one. It was not until I educated myself by going to a training at the presbytery around racism to learn about its history and continued influence on society that I began to scratch the surface of my understanding of my own white privilege and my own racism. And it has been a process of pruning. And pruning is like, what? You know, painful? <laughs> cut, things get off, get cut off in pruning. But it's only in the pruning that we begin to yield more fruit that the passage in John 15 speaks of. That often we have to get to the space where we admit our own privilege and the ways we have hurt and hindered others with our privilege and the way we may hold to unhealthy narratives that marginalize others. But the hope, the hope is that as we do this work of understanding white privilege and racism and our relationship to these things, that we can then begin to also do a new thing. 
That's a Jesus thing. We can help build a new narrative, create a new narrative, create a liberating narrative. And we don't have to look far to know how to build it because Jesus already gave it to us. This is what Jesus did in giving us the narrative that is the kingdom of God, the narrative of love and inclusion for all. But we must realize new narratives and building them cost us something, cost Jesus his very life, and it's got to cost us something as well, whether it's our time or our resources or our comfort. Something must be sacrificed to create new narratives of liberation. And it's certainly going to cost us our pride because you need humility to engage in a conversation about white privilege and our own racism. And for whites, we must admit and learn the truth that white privilege is a reality. It's not a fiction. It's not something of the past. We are not in a post-racial era. And rather than feeling like we are being called out on our white privilege, we must realize we are being called in. Called in to a deeper place of work and understanding for racial justice. So I have one story to tell you from, from the uh, White Privilege Conference. Well, I was in this uh, seminar about, uh, it was for facilitators of discussions around difficult topics, such as, as white privilege. And, and, and what do we do, and how do we create safe space, and how do we uh, you know, work in such a fashion as to invite people in rather than call them out? And uh, the person uh, who is leading uh, this conference, uh, uh, Natalie, and she talked about, in the beginning part of the, um, of the uh, uh, seminar, uh, she talked about, she's been doing this for years, and she talked about how, like, white men frequently dominate the conversation, even about white privilege, right? Like, that in, in the room, they'll be the first ones to say, you know, she'll say, like, let's, let's, let's acknowledge everybody here, and let's give everybody space to share, and don't go on too long. And she talked about one seminar where, like, if, if she asked a question after setting all that up, and immediately some, some guy, some white guy said, look, people tell me I talk too much all the time, but... And he went on to, like, you know, proceed to talk, blah, 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 blah. So she had a question for us. She said, um, uh, after, like, all this setup and some other introductory stuff, she's like, so what calls you to this work? There's about 40 people in this room, right? She's like, what calls you to this work? And we're sitting in a big circle. And she's, she's right there, and, and I'm right here. And there was a little bit of silence. I don't, I don't like silence. I like to fill silence. So... I raised my hand. <laughs> she looks over at me. She says, do you want to be the first person to speak? <laughs> I mean, it was like, no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this was like a five-hour seminar. And so that got to be a thing for the rest of the seminar, right? I got to be the thing we kept referring back to <laughs> during the rest of the seminar. But it was great. Like, you know, she, caught, she said, um, at, after a, a little, you know, discussion <laughs> about that and some other people sharing, you know, she obviously came back to me and said, Jeff, would you like to say something? And, and uh, I said, yeah. And I said, thanks for calling me out. And she's like, oh, I hope I was calling you in. You know, and she was. She did it like it was a playful way. It was a soft way. It was a, it was a fun way. And uh, later in the uh, seminar, we were broke up into groups talking about something. 
and we all had to, sh our groups had to share and reflect, and she said, so, does uh, any group want to go first? So immediately I went, <laughs> got the response I exactly wanted, so <laughs> it was good. I was just, just joking, just joking. But we have to be, we have to be willing to engage in this work humbly, to realize that we're going to make mistakes as we step into uh, really examining our own uh, white privilege, our own biases, and then thinking about what we can possibly do um, in the world to make a difference. So I just, uh, we're, I'm going to talk more about this in, in two weeks, on April 29th, here in this space. And then you're invited to that conversation on Monday uh, the 30th. And I just want to leave you with a couple things to think about and consider and how you can maybe start to do some of this work. One is to educate yourself, to read books about it, to check out the White Privilege website. There are lots of great resources there. Two is to build relationships, because being in relationship with someone diffuses so much of our bias and prejudice. It moves people out of the back of our minds into the front of our minds. Am I telling you to go out and get a black friend? No, not exactly. But I want you to be attuned to the spaces in your life where there is diversity and where you have relationships that you might be able to press into more deeply. And ask your friends of color or diversity to tell you their story and to then listen deeply. And if there are no such spaces in your life with that kind of diversity, simply just without judgment, ask yourself why and consider that. And then I want you to think of human babies. That is one of my strategies for diffusing racism. Think of human babies. I was in Starbucks the other day, and the cutest little girl walked by, and she had like a lollipop. And I just like, I just all of a sudden I looked at everybody. It was a pretty diverse uh, situation. I looked at everybody in Starbucks, and I thought, what if everybody here was like a human baby? We'd just be like, we'd all be like all googly and loving towards each other. I don't know when we lose that. Like people get older, and then we start categorizing. So. Human babies, just think of human babies. That's my, my big takeaway. <laughs> um, and then be willing to say, tell me more. Tell me more. Because when we get in these conversations, often we immediately, something's said, and we get defensive, and we want to go to our corner, and we want to fight back. That's our first gut reaction. But what if we said, well, tell me more? Why do you think that way? Let me hear your story. And then ground yourself, like we did at the beginning of this, this uh, sermon. Ground yourself in, in healthy, meditative, and contemplative practice. Because it's only in grounding ourselves and finding that, that stillness within that we can then find a space of compassion and love and empathy towards others. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, thank you so much for the day that you have given to us. And God, as we come to you uh, this morning, we do ask that you would speak to our lives and that you would help uh, reveal to us our own biases, our own uh, prejudices, the stereotypes and narratives that we might uh, unconsciously or consciously hold on to as truth, but which really are not true. And help us, O oh God, to build new narratives, the liberating narrative of love that is ours in Jesus Christ, and to find ways to live into that with humility as we seek to love one another. 
This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.